0: God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, raised up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace, his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, at the time you were without Christ, being aliens in the, from the Commonwealth of Israel. "...and stranger from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made both one and broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, as to creating himself the one new man from the two, thus making peace." "...that He might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting death to enmity. And He came to, and preached peace to you who were afar off and those who were near. For through Him we have both access by one Spirit to the Father. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself." being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building, fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place in God, in the Spirit. Look at chapter 3 for just one second. Verses 14 and 15. For this reason, that's all the verses we didn't read there, for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Now chapter 5, verse 8. Last verse we'll look at. Chapter 5, verse 8. Look at this verse. For you, once, for you were once darkness. Not you were in darkness. What does it say? For you were once darkness darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, walk as children of light. Let's pray together and let's pray for our nation and our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. Uh, Father, we see here in your word that we were once darkness. We see that uh, we were, uh, Lord, opposed to you, violently opposed to you in our flesh. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that is still without Christ, still afar off, still opposed to you, maybe not even aware, but just that sin nature that only you can reverse. Lord, we pray that today would be the day they'd come to know you as Lord and Savior. Lord, we have a world around us that's still in darkness, that is afar off, and you've called us to be light in this world. And we ask, Lord, that you would send forth your light, not only in Calvary Chapel, Richmond, but our brothers and sisters and other churches all around this city, all around this state, all around this nation, all around the world. You'd bring a great awakening to this nation. Lord, uh, we'll be looking in coming weeks, Ezekiel 38 and 39, you use the world stage to open up the eyes of those, uh, Lord, that are unaware that you're coming soon. You're coming back for your church and you're going to come for a clean bride. As you mentioned in Ephesians chapter 5 as well, Lord, that you will come and you're looking for a bride, Lord, that is adorned with righteousness and the works that you prepared for us. Lord, we ask that you would... uh, bring revival as we prayed and and sang in the worship this morning, that it would start with us. We all, Lord, have areas of, uh, Lord, just rebellion or or disobedience in our life that you want to deal with, and we pray that you would deal with us and that then we would be used, Lord, as your ambassadors as we go out into this world. We pray, Father, for our persecuted brothers and sisters this morning, that, Lord, that you would deliver them in 2016, Pastor Saeed, many others that have been in prison. This would be the year that you set them free. And Lord, that you would just protect those that right now are in the worst of places. Give them the protection of the prophets of old, Lord, that they would be able to proclaim the name of the Lord and many would come to know you. Bless this time this morning. Speak through your word and by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing with me. And God thanks you for standing in in just reverence to his word. It's It's not a requirement. I just felt like it was a good thing for us to do together, just to stand and hear the Word of the Lord together. You know, uh, Pastor David Guzik of Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara, uh, for the first time, he's a, he's a gifted Bible teacher. I don't know if you've ever gone out to uh, com, but if you've got a Blue Letter Bible, they've got all those commentaries. Well, one of the best ones there is written by David Guzik. And last year, for the first time in all of his years of teaching, and he was you know the professor of the... Uh, Calvary Chapel Bible College over in Germany, and and he took over the, the Calvary Chapel Santa Barbara two years ago. Last year he did something he had never done before. He did not preach; he simply read for about forty minutes nonstop from the Book of John, and like forty people got saved. Is that not amazing? I know that God put something on my heart, and I want to share it with you this morning. But did you hear the words that Paul wrote about Jesus? I mean, you might want to go read them again, go stand in your closet or something and read them because people can get saved not because what I preach or teach or what you have to say or your life experience, but what the Word of God says and so it's good for us to be reminded uh, that really, if we don't have the Word of God, we don't, have, we don't have much, do we? We have here before us in Ephesians chapter two, and then primarily the, ch- the second chapter, but you could certainly apply uh, uh, the other verses we looked at in chapter 3 and verse, uh, chapter 5, we have here before us a before and after picture of the family of God. And the striking difference between the family that's filled with the presence of God and the families of the world from which all of us came, we all came out of the world that don't know God. right? Still in darkness, still wandering. Let me read you something Uh, from one of James Dobson's books, he's written many, but this one was called uh, Love Must Be Tough. I want to read you this. He says, the most vulnerable victims of family instability are children who are too young to understand what has happened to their parents. That uh, tragic impact on the next generation was graphically illustrated to me, James speaking of himself, in a recent conversation that I had with a six-year-old sixth-grade teacher in an upper-middle-class California city. She was shocked to see the results of a creative writing task assigned to her students. They were asked to complete a sentence that began with the words, I wish. The teacher expected the boys and girls to express their wishes for bicycles, dogs, television sets, and trips to Hawaii. Instead, 20 of the 30 children... Twenty of the thirty children made reference in their response to the disintegrating of their families. A few other, a few of their actual sentences were as follows: These were the, what some of the kids wrote. I wish my parents wouldn't fight, and I wish my father would come back. I wish my mother didn't have a boyfriend. I wish I could get straight A's so my father would love me. I wish I had a mom. I had one mom and one dad, so the kids wouldn't make fun of me. I have three moms and three dads, and they botch up my life. I wish I had an M1 rifle so I could shoot those who make fun of me. These were real statements. 20 out of 30 kids, their families disintegrating. Regardless of the socioeconomic status, Satan is destroying families. Would you agree? He's destroying families all across this nation, all across the world. We see it when we go into Bon Air. Uh, When we were there, um, and we were there uh, two days after Christmas, the 27th, you know, just uh, my wife and I were in the lockdown unit, and uh, it was all girls. These are the girls that are the most, have committed the worst crimes in the state of Virginia, and they're locked up in just a little tiny window because they've been in lockdown for three consecutive days, and you hear their families, and we're talking to them through a little opening where the tray goes in and out. And all of this is the disintegration of the family. Even yesterday as I was walking in our neighborhood, we live in a you know, nice middle class neighborhood, nice homes. Most people have, you know, two cars, a cat, a dog, all that good stuff. And I'm walking and, and I was just walking and praying early in the morning, and uh, you know, nice house, normal looking house. I hear this, I come around the corner, they didn't see me. I hear this dad just giving it to one of his sons. I work my off, and uh, that's what I heard him say, and, and uh, him and his brothers were both, you know, just their faces down, and it's early in the morning, and I, you know, getting that, different curse words and stuff like that, and I look back, and that was kind of, you know, when I grew up uh, in, in, as a kid, all of my football coaches talk like, uh, basketball coaches talk like that, everyone, my parents didn't talk like that, but I was so used to it in our neighborhood. There's so many of you who grew up in you know rough areas where you're. You know, that's where everybody talked to their kids. But you realize now, if you know the Lord, how much damage that does to people. And that there's no peace in that house, and there's no rest. You see, the whole world needs Jesus. The whole world needs God as their Father. Because there's a lot of bad examples of fathers, isn't there? The whole world needs God as their Father, and listen, Church, the whole world needs a family. Did you catch the words in in chapter 3? The family of God, both in earth and in heaven. If you're taking notes, I titled today's message and study, When God Builds a Family. It isn't going to mess up, is it? He's not going to botch it up. When God builds a family, that's what we want to look at here this morning as we start this new year together. I believe what God does with the family is imperative what he will do with us. The Lord started continuously putting the theme of family on my heart back in October as we completed the move, and, and then I further discussed it with the elders in some meetings and prayer we had with them in November and December. It just kept The word family just kept coming into my heart and my mind constantly. Family. It's not a new concept. It's been around since the Garden of Eden, right? The the word family is not new. The concept's not new. But folks, what we focus on is what we become. And the theme of family that God kept reinforcing for me was continued. he'd reinforce it when I had my devotion time, in studies, in prayer. I woke up very early on December 26th, day after Christmas. Woke up real early, really well-rested. And I woke up, you, know, you ever have dreams just before you wake up? It's real early, it's like the, you're kind of coming into wake-up time. And I, I woke up, and I was dreaming about organization and structure within the church. Exciting stuff, huh? <laughs> I was dreaming about organization and structure within the church. I didn't go to bed thinking about that. I went to bed thinking about Christmas stuff. The day before was Christmas Day. I don't know why God had me early in the morning dreaming about organizational structure. I'm seeing org charts and designs and all this stuff, and I wake up. But the last thing I heard before I woke up out of that dream, someone in the the circle of people I was standing there talking with said this word, tribes. I got to thinking about that. Even though I was in my dream, I was still thinking about the word tribes. You see, there were 12 tribes in the nation of Israel. They were all descendants of 12 brothers. They had one father, his name was Jacob. They lived in 12 different areas in the promised land, but they were one family. They were 12 tribes, but they were one family with one father they descended, and they were called the children of Israel. No one calls us the children of George Washington. They were called the children of Israel because God had made them A family, and they had these twelve tribes, these different areas, and they had a central city. Their central city was Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the central city where God will ultimately build the temple, and that's where they would come together and worship. And they were a close, unified family, but they were also to be a light to the pagan world. That's why God put them in the center. Matter of fact, that nation, that part of the world, is called the heartbeat of the world. It would be a light to everyone around them. And I believe over the past few months, the Lord has been confirming <laughs> for us a very clear vision of how Calvary Chapel Richmond is to shine in 2016 and beyond. That's as a family, the same as God had set up in at the Garden of Eden, but that family got off the rails, didn't they? Then the children of Israel were set up as a family, but they got off the rails. God wants the church to be that same family. 11900 Genito, that's where you're sitting here this morning. This is our Jerusalem. It's where we gather centrally to worship, even though we live in separate places. You might look around, you all live in different parts. Some of you live in South Chesterfield, some of you live in Hopewell, some of you live in Powhatan, some of you live in Amelia, some of you live in the city, some of you live over in Mechanicsville and all around the city. But this is our Jerusalem. And yet, even though we live separately, we're connected in Christ through the Holy Spirit. And when we think of this ministry, when you think of this ministry, here's who we are. Here's who we are. We are a group of families and individuals knit together as one reaching out to the families and individuals all around us. Does that make sense? We are a group of families and individual knit together as one reaching out to the families an individual all around us. We're not a religious organization. I mean, we are, but that's not who we really are. We're not a super hip church. If you're looking for super hip, they're out there. We're not super, we're a little hip, but we're not super hip. (laughs) But we are a family, and we're called to be a family, and the world needs a family. Now, to understand how we move forward, in 2016, we need to understand who we are in the Lord and what we as a family are called to do. Today we'll focus on the who and the what we're called to be. The who and the what we're called to be. And then in the next few weeks in our Luke study, over the next two weeks, then culminating in what we have titled Ministry Sunday, which is January the 24th, uh, we'll look at the who and how we are to serve. The who and how we're to serve today is the who and what we're called to be, but we'll look at the who and how we're called to serve. And we'll be returning on January 24th on that ministry right back here to Ephesians because there's a lot more here uh, that we can look at on understanding what God wants us to do. But let's look at uh, this morning first, who and what we are in the family that the Lord has built, and thankfully the Lord is continuing to add to, amen? So with the family of God, it just continues to grow not one size, you continue to add to it. We want to look at it from the text here this morning. Uh, The first thing we want to look at, if your Bibles are open, Ephesians chapter 2, is if you're taking notes, the materials. What are the materials that God is using to build this family, or to build the building of the New Testament church? The materials. Well, in verse 2 it says, in which you. Well, the materials are us. When it comes to building the family of God, building a uh, church family, God starts with really, really poor candidates. Did you know that? He starts with really, really poor candidates to make an outstanding family. He starts with us. And that's an understatement to accomplish His desired goals. Look at what it says in which you once walked according to the course of this world, the pr- according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit and outworks, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all conducted ourselves, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the lust of the, uh, the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath. This is the materials God has to start with. In fact, none of the materials that God has to start with are usable. And let's think about it this way. If it was a commanding Uh, officer who was looking to actually assemble an army nobody would join the commanding officer because they would all want to fight for the enemy. That's what God started with. When he builds his family he starts with those that are actually opposed to him and wins them over supernaturally. G. Campbell Morgan wrote uh, many years back the materials of the building are found amid things which are absolutely opposed to the will and purpose of God. God starts with a group of candidates that are actually opposed to him and turns them into his family. Isn't that amazing? It's always good to remember that we bring exactly nothing to the table. Isn't that good to know? It should level set our expectations of one another. We don't bring anything to the table. God does a redeeming work, nothing. You've heard it's good to never forget where you came from. Spiritually, this is especially true. Especially true spiritually, don't ever forget where you came from. We don't live in the past, but as we talked about last week, we learn from it. We, it's a footstep, it's a stepping stone. Paul was always remembering his testimony. That's why he liked to tell it often, but he didn't live there. He would say, that's where I came from. Look at the first half of uh, verse 8 and chapter, uh, chapter 5. For you once, you were once darkness, darkness, not that we came from it. We had no light whatsoever. We had no redeeming value. We weren't the brick that was going to make something of strength to the building, right? We weren't that, when, when you put this brick in, this, this building going to be strong. We didn't have that. We weren't the son or daughter that was going to bring joy and character to the family of God. The only joy and character come from the Son of God not the sons and daughters of God. No, we were the sons and daughters of disobedience. We were children of wrath. And I love what it says, Paul writes, like everyone else, he says. Like everyone else, the whole world has the same problem, the same disease, the same issues. Then look at verse 4, which I highlighted when we read it. But God. Your whole Bible, you could write on the front of it, but God. The entirety of Scripture is everything that we are but God. Let's look at the next, the materials. We understand the materials. God didn't have much to work with, but he knew what to do with it because he's a miracle, supernatural, power, wonder-working God. Amen? Amen. Taking notes and look at the miracles. In verse 4, if you read on, but God, who is rich. Well, he's rich in everything. He has all the gold, he has all the money, he has all the power, but he's rich in mercy. What we need most of all is not the streets of gold, that can't save us, but we do need his mercy. Rich in mercy. Because of his great love, which he loved us. You know, he loved us while we were still in sin, not when we had cleaned ourselves up. No, he loved us before we had turned. His mercy and His love raised us from the dead and out of darkness. It goes on to say, in verse 6, raised us up together. It made us alive, the text says. In Colossians 1.13, I must have read this verse four times in the last four months, but let's read it again. Colossians 1.13, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of His Son, the Son of His love. Remember who Jesus chose to be one of the earliest missionaries and evangelists? We, we studied this, uh, this individual in the book of Luke, back in Luke chapter 8. Uh, one of Jesus' first missionaries and evangelists was a naked, demonically possessed man slicing himself up, causing fear and terror among everybody. That was one of the first people Jesus chose to be an evangelist, and he actually reached the ten cities of Decapolis. Nobody saw him as a candidate for the ministry. But he went throughout the cities, proclaiming all that Jesus done, and people marveled. Why? Because it was a miracle. Some miracles are obvious to see, but really everyone's conversion is just as much as a miracle. It's just some are more clearly visible than others. Everyone actually has some bit of uncleanliness on them. Even if they had just showered and stuff, you just had to put it under a microscope. But God actually always sees the true condition, and he sees the inside as well. We were talking yesterday uh, over breakfast in, in our family, uh, and we got on the topic of the uh, first time I had gone to my wife's family reunion. It's a summer family reunion every summer. first time I went was 27 years ago over in Roanoke. And, um, and today, over the last several years, when we gather, they'll ask, they'll, they'll ask me to pray over meals and stuff. That's what I said, guarantee when we were there, they were praying over me uh, when we first got there or wanted to pray over me or thought they should. But God's turning us to Himself. It isn't just a miracle, but it's also a testament of His kindness. It says here in verse seven, uh, "The riches of His grace and His kindness towards us. God's not just His grace, not just His mercy, but His kindness and His willing to give us the gift of His grace. Never forget, never forget that that same gift, that same kindness, that same miraculous and transforming power can be accepted by people, but guess what? It could also be rejected. I don't want the kindness of God. I don't want your God. I don't want his forgiveness. I don't need it. I'm pretty good. I'm reading from um, this day in history from Robert J. Morgan. Uh, And it says this. This is one uh, that he wrote for February 6th. But he said, Christian parents often worry about sending their sons and daughters to colleges and universities. Um, sometimes with good reason. I'd say even more so now than ever. Young people can lose their faith there, but some lose it, only regain it later with added strength. Adoniram Judson grew up in a parsonage around Boston in the late 1700s. He entered Brown University at age 16 and graduated Victorian from his class. While there, he became best friends with Jacob Eames. Jacob was a deist and, in practical terms, an atheist. Ridiculing Judson's faith, he challenged him with the writings of Voltaire and the French philosophers. When Adoniram returned home, he told his parents, too, that he had also become an atheist. His mother broke into sobs. His father roared, threatened, and pounded the furniture. Adoniram, at 21 years of age, migrated to New York City to establish himself as a playwright. But then, hearing tales from the American frontier, he saddled his horse and headed west one evening, weary from traveling, he stopped at an inn. The proprietor said, forgive me, sir, but I only have one room left. Well, it'll be a bit noisy, and there's a young fellow next door who's awfully sick. Adoniram, too uh, too tired to care, took the key. That night became a nightmare. The tramping of feet coming and going, muffled voices, painful groans, chairs scraping against the floor. Adoniram was troubled by it all, and he wondered what his friend Jacob Eames would say about fear, illness, and death. The next morning, while checking out, he asked about the young man in the next room. The proprietor said, I thought maybe you'd heard. He died, sir, toward morning. Very young, not more than your age. He went to Brown University out east, Adoniram stiffened. The man continued, his name was Jacob Eames. The west suddenly lost its lure, and Adoniram turned his horse toward home. Soon he gave his life to Christ. Shortly afterward, devoted himself to missions, and on February 6, 1812, Adonai Judson was commissioned as America's first foreign missionary. He and his wife and his companions set sail for Burma on February the 18th. You know, God, the the miracle of um, salvation, is more evident in some people than it is in others. But everyone that we meet has the same opportunity to either accept it or reject it. It's a miracle that God offers it at all. It's a miracle that anyone accepts it because we're in darkness. But don't take for granted that you never know and I never know that two people walking on the same path, how in the world did he expect that way out west, the very guy he had been to college with was dying in the room next to him. And we don't know what God's doing and dealing with with the people standing right beside us, driving the car right beside us, down the street from us. God wants to do these miracles in everyone. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. When we look at our next point this morning, we looked at the uh, miracles, how about the mediation? The mediation. The miracle of our salvation is the first thing that Christ mediates. It tells us Uh, That Jesus, uh, He's the one that brings us into a family relationship with God. He's the one that brokers that relationship that we can actually have peace with God, that we can have a relationship with God. That relationship is established by the covenant of His blood. Look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off been brought near by the blood of Christ. Without the shedding of blood there's no remission of sin. You could say that before Christ, none of us were blood relatives of Jesus. Before the cross, none of us were blood relatives. But afterwards, well, it's the blood that God recognized as our birth certificate, if you will, into the family of God. God looks at the blood. That is the certified authenticity of family relationship with Him. If He doesn't see the blood, Jacob Eames, no blood covering. Unless he gave his life to Christ at the very last second, there was no blood covering, no family relationship with God. In Hebrews 9.15, it says, He is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions. God's family is a righteous family, so there's no way to come into the family without his righteousness on. And since we don't have that, that's what Paul's established we don't have that at the outset, we are darkness, we're children of wrath, we're sons of disobedience. He has to mediate and step between and place upon us the marks of His blood sacrifice that God will accept. In 1 Timothy 2.5 it says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He is the bridge of which we pass from this world into the family of God. But the mediation work of Christ isn't done with just our salvation. That's marvelous. That's wonderful. I mean, we are singing and praising this morning because of our salvation, but the mediation work of Christ isn't done with salvation. What do I mean by that? Well, Christ is the mediator that makes a family out of individuals, take all of us. He's the mediator that makes a family out of individuals who would otherwise never be able to be a family, who would never even want to be a family and would fight each other like cats and dogs within a family. Does that make sense? God takes not only people that are not candidates to be in his family, but people that otherwise would never get along in a family. You ever been in a dysfunctional family? You're laughing because some of you are in a dysfunctional family right now, right? We all know, we, we have so many TV shows now that are all about dysfunctional families. Why? Because everyone can relate to it. Now when I hear people say, my family's dysfunctional I'm like, join the club. Everyone's is. Now in the body of Christ, over time, we still will be imperfect, but we become a family that does function well together, because Jesus is a mediator of peace and harmony and reconciliation and actually forgiving one another, even as He has forgiven us. So he not only mediates our salvation but he mediates our relationships. If you look at verses, and I, we don't have time to go through it. In verses 11 through 18, we have two things that are happening here. Actually, we have Paul use a very unique term. Uh, he says in verse 12, at the time you are without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. The commonwealth of Israel. Now, if you study this and you study with you know, Paul's writings about Israel and, and, and Romans as well, uh, what Paul's getting at here is, Salvation was first given to the Jewish family. It was first given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then the descendants. And Jesus came to the lost house of Israel first. And then we were grafted in, those of us who are Gentiles, we were grafted into the family through saving faith, the same saving faith as Abraham had. So is Paul talking here about spiritual Israel or the nation state of Israel? Yes. I say this often. Scripture is very, very, God speaks to multiple things at one time. The principle of duality, where God is not only speaking to the fact that Israel is the spiritual state of the fact that all of those who are saved are part of spiritual Israel, but at the same time, there are some level of benefits and promises that will remain for the nation of Israel. And we, with salvation, come under those same benefits. Now, originally, the 12, brothers of the, the 12 brothers, they didn't even get along so well with each other. What did they do with their young brother Joseph? They sold him into slavery, right? So the family wasn't always functioning correctly. But the point is that Jesus is mediating not only salvation, but within a family, he's taking the 12 brothers that originally didn't have peace with each other, and they were brought into peace, and then Jew and Gentile were opposed to each other, they were opposed to each other well before the Roman Empire and certainly during you know, the Pharisees they could not stand the Roman rule. But then when people would come to Christ, Jesus was, was explaining that in Christ there would be neither Jew nor Gentile, Greek, slave, free, all would be brought under one family relationship. And Jesus would mediate that peace. You know, you look at what ha- it takes place constantly right now between the Palestinians and the Gaza Strip and, and over there in the West Bank and Israel, no one can mediate peace except who? The Prince of Peace. And we have seen where there is churches planted and where Jesus Christ has been preached and both Arabs and Jews have come to Christ, they now love each other in ways that they couldn't even understand. And it doesn't always come naturally out of the gate. They immediately have discomfort around each other I know your family hates my family, and my family hates your family. But we both worship Jesus, Let's let's worship together, right? But a little while later, God starts to break down the middle walls of separation. That's what the Lord does within a family. That's what he does with us. Let's look at the next point if you're taking notes. We looked at the miracles and the mediation. How about the manifestation? So for the family of God, what will it manifest? What will it look like to the outside world? What will the world see when it sees the family of God? What will it see when it sees Calvary Chapel of Richmond? What does the house of God look like in the world? What is it supposed to look like to the world that's looking on? What should this property look like? For people that enter in here, walk in these doors, maybe you're here for the first time this morning, what should it look like to someone walking in or walking onto this property? Now, the things that we'll look at in brief here, it's not a a linear uh, view of the text, but it's a composite view of the text because to go through it linear linear is a little difficult, but we can go through it uh, as a composite view. The first is when people see the church, when they see this church, they should see a family. They should see a family. How does God describe it in verse 19? Look at verse 19. Members of the household of God. Household. Members of the household of God. God says, if you have come under the blood of my son, you are members of the household of God. His house is not to be a dysfunctional place. It's to be a place of grace. It's a place of forgiveness, a place of peace, a place of rest. Now more than ever, the world needs to see what a real family looks like. Amen? The world needs to see what a real family, what God designed a family to look like. It didn't take long before Cain killed his brother Abel. So the families have been under attack ever since individuals and families. And some of you, are, you, you're down to, there's not many people left in your family. Maybe you're single. Maybe you're widowed. If you need a family, God wants to give you a family. If you're in a family, maybe you've forgotten you're in a family. But the world needs a family like it never has before. If you look at verse 19 and the rest of it, fellow citizens and saints and members, the family of God has been knit together from a multitude of backgrounds, all different backgrounds in this room alone, and yet we've become brothers and sisters and fellow citizens, kind of like locked arms together. That means fellows, fellow citizens, locked arms together. Family of heaven, as chapter 3 says, but also a tight-knit family where the walls of earthly separation have been broken down in here. We know they're broken down in heaven, but God says heaven and the family here on earth. We don't wait till we get to heaven to act like we're in heaven. We start to already put on the same robes of grace and righteousness now. Culture, gender, ethnicity, skin color, economic status, none of those are barriers to our unity. But by the means of grace, they actually add to our unity. Isn't that interesting? Instead of being barriers to our unity, they actually add to our unity when it's in Christ and by the Holy Spirit. That's the work that God does. Nobody wants to be in a family where everyone looks identical to them. Do you? Maybe you think you're that good looking. You would want everyone to look exactly like you. But I personally would not want to live in a world where everyone was exactly the same, had the exact same interests. I love my wife has different interests than I do, has different thoughts about things than I do. If she thought exactly the same as me, it would be a pretty boring world. God wants to give the body of Christ all these different members from different backgrounds a oneness in Christ. John Browning said, a happy family is but an earlier heaven. A happy family is but an earlier heaven. We should appreciate the things that God puts into the family. One of the best things that can be said by someone coming into Calvary Chapel Richmond would be something like this. You are all so very different and yet so very much the same. That would be a good thing for someone to say. Or, I just noticed the love and just care that uh, is in this place. They would see that love, they would see that care, they would see the concern and the oriented heart's outwardly, not just inwardly, but outwardly as well. Jesus said this, uh, that when people looked at the family of God, He told the disciples in John thirteen thirty five. He said, "...by this all will know that you're My disciples, that ye," what? "...love one another." He, said, he didn't say that they would know because you could perform miracles. He didn't say they'd know because you could speak in tongues. He didn't say they would know because you gave more in the offering plate than anyone else. He didn't say they'd know because you actually had memorized more Scripture than the person sitting next to you. He said they would know that you were his disciple if you had loved one for another. That was the definition that Jesus gave of what the family of God would look like. Um, first, we looked at if people walked in this place, they would see a family. Number two, if you're taking notes under, uh, under the manifestation. Number two, that they would see there's peace. Not just peace with one another, but peace in our hearts and in our minds. Peace because Christ himself is our peace. Don't you love uh, verse 14? For he himself is our peace. Well, you, you need something to meditate on this year when you're feeling anxious and stressed. Turn to that verse, for He Himself is our peace. It can drive out thoughts that are in your mind. But He Himself is our peace through the Holy Spirit. And He's bringing us into the presence of the Father who holds the whole world in His hands. There's a lot of peace when you actually realize, when you really realize, there's times when we get this and there's times we forget God really is in control. He really is in control. He really is not bothered by tomorrow's news, and there'll be news tomorrow and the next day. He really still is in control. He's in control of your life. He knows that you got the flu two weeks ago. He knew you were going to get it before you knew you were going to get it, right? He knows all these things. He really is in control. A.W. Tozer said, surely Bible-reading Christians should be the last persons on earth to give way to hysteria. They are redeemed from their past offenses, kept in their present circumstances by the Power of an all-powerful God, and their future is safe in his hands. People should walk in here and not only see a family environment and see a family that loves each other, but they should sense peace and say, "I want that kind of peace. I want that kind of peace that comes from the prince of peace. In Christ, we have peace, we have forgiveness. we're not living in guilt and shame anymore. We've got enough things we can be guilty and shameful about, but we don't have to live there because he's given us grace. That gives us peace. Number three, we should reflect when people come in, they should see that in this place, Calvary Chapel, Richmond, it's built on the work of Christ, it's built on the saints that went long before us, and it's built on the Word of God. There's nothing we can say, yeah, we did a fantastic job over here. There's a lot of pride in ministries. There's a, lot of pride. There's a lot of pride in Christians that God wants to get rid of. I love what Paul writes. He says, having been built on the foundation, the apostles and the prophets and Jesus Christ himself, the chief cornerstone. Paul is saying, if you ever get a big head, please read this verse. That's what he's saying. There's nothing, he said, if you have anything at all as a family of believers, you didn't build it. He said it was built by the apostles, the prophets, and Jesus Christ himself, the chief cornerstone. I am so thankful for men that I've never met, men like Thomas and Matthew and Elijah and Daniel and, of course, Jesus himself. They built what we are today, amen? Read Hebrews chapter 11 and 12. So great a cloud of witnesses. We didn't build anything. We just simply inherited. We were given a gift to God saying, all right, I'm going to let you be a small family in Richmond And you're built on all the other families that have gone before you. The Martin Luthers and all down the the centuries. You know, this is a reminder for us. Never leave the foundation. Never run for the latest fads. Oh, everyone's doing this. We need to do it. If the apostles and prophets weren't doing it, I'm not real worried about it. How about you? We don't run after the latest fads. The cornerstone is still the cornerstone of God's Word. Nothing's going to replace His Word. We're not going to put the Bible down and start going through 80 weeks of so-and-so's book. I like people's books. I gave some of you a book written by Tom Rainer, and it's a great book. But that's not going to be the book we preach from. It might augment things, but it's the Word of God that's the chief cornerstone. It's the Son of God. He alone is our desire to hear from and to glorify the pride of ministries over the years has always started when people left the cornerstone and believed they were the cornerstone. That's right. He's the cornerstone. People should be able to come in here and say, one thing about that place is you guys really believe Jesus and the Bible is the cornerstone to everything. Yes, it is. If we leave that, we don't have much. We don't have anything. Number four, complementary parts. People should see that it's, it's a complementary work of the Spirit through the different parts and people that God has placed here and their gifts. Uh, it says right here in verse 21, um, and also in verse 20 built together, fitted together, uh, built, fitted together in 21, built together in 22. We're fitted together like the varied parts that make up your house. You have a lot of different parts that make up your house, a lot of different parts that make up this building. They look different, but they make one building. And they're all complementary, and they're all needed. You might think you don't bring much to the table. I'm telling you, you do. Not before you were saved, but after you are saved, God has you a specific part. We actually need, in your house, you need parts that you don't pay much attention to. But when they, those pipes freeze, you start paying attention to them, right? But they're just as important when they're not frozen. God needs every single part to play its part in the body of Christ. In Alan Lloyd McGinnis' book, Bringing Out the Best in People, He writes this about Charles Schwab. Uh, The great billionaire tycoon, uh, Andrew Carnegie. You guys have heard of Andrew Carnegie up in, Carnegie Mellon up in Pittsburgh. But Andrew Carnegie hired a man by the name of Charles Schwab to administer his far flung steel empire. Schwab became the first man in history to earn one million a year while in someone else's employment. Schwab was once uh, asked, what equipped him to earn $3,000 a day? Was it his knowledge of the steel manufacturing business? Nonsense, snorted Schwab. I have lots of men working for me who know more about steel than I do. Complimentary parts. There are lots of people here that know more than you and I about certain things, and God puts them here to each play their part. Some of them are way better at working with kids. And you'll readily admit that maybe, right? That's why you're not over there right now. But some of them are way better at working with kids. Some of them are better at audiovisual. Some of them sing better than you and I. And if you don't know that, Tawan can give you a workout, and you can find out where we think you land on that. But God does this in the church. He brings people together with various gifts, various talents, various abilities, Saved by grace, but now meant to use those gifts and talents all for the glory of the Lord. Complimentary parts. Number five, growth and maturing. Growth and maturing. And it says here in the text, the whole building grows into a holy temple. Growth and maturing. The building or the family actually grows. It says right here in the text that Paul says this Living organism called the family of God will actually grow. Some of you are doing a great job at this by the number of kids you're having, so thank you. You're doing that uh, really, really well. Um, but if you take a look at the, at the physical family, my family, on my dad's side, it was just my dad and his brother and my grandparents. There was just four in the, in the late 40s. There's just four of them. Today, there's 43 and counting from those four. What God said originally to the first family, be fruitful and what? Multiply. It's the same thing God says to the church, be fruitful and multiply. But it has to be maturing for multiplication. People have to become adults before they can have kids, or they should be adults before they have kids, right? There's a multiplication. The family of God should be growing. People should see not only growth in numerically and physically, but spiritually. Are you growing spiritually? Ask your, spouse to, ask your spouse, say, hey, I'm not going to be offended. Am I growing spiritually? Ask each other. Well, you were last year, about the middle of the year. Something happened. Or am I still loving the Lord like I used to? Is there, is there a newfound fervor for these things? We should be maturing. Are we more gracious? Are we more compassionate? growth and maturing. Last one that should be seen in this composite view. There's others, but what we're looking at this morning. Holiness, number six. Grows together into a holy temple in the Lord. What does that mean? People should know that when they come in this place, there's a reverence for God. There's a belief that He's holy and we are not. It's an awe of the Lord. Is a sensitivity to sin that we don't take sin like, hey, yeah, if you feel like doing it, just do it. Grace covers everything. That's cheap grace. That's not actually God's amazing grace. That's a cheap substitute. A desire to walk pure and in fellowship with the Lord, that that you want to be more pure in 2016 than you were in 2015. And we all can grow in that. We all must grow in that because the world is becoming more dark. At the same time, we have to become more light. 1 Peter 1.15, it says, As he who called you is holy, so you also be holy in all your conduct. There might be areas of our conduct we we neglected in the past where God's saying, don't neglect it anymore. Be holy in that area too. I'm not talking about pious walking around like, you know, we need to be relatable to people. But they should see a difference in us. Psalm 66.18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. He's not going to hear us if we're still in sin. So we need to uh, manifest these things, you know, some simple things that we could be doing. Less smartphone, more wisdom from Jesus. Less Facebook, more in the face of his presence, right? Less all the other things that we, that we give such importance to that aren't really important. And they actually sap our holiness instead of actually strengthening. We're all guilty of it. We're all guilty of these things. I mean Christmas is about Christ but is it really in the totality of people's minutes? Of course it's not when we look around. Even in our own lives we can look back and say wow that's a lot of wasted time where we could be drawing nearer to the Lord. That's His desire that we would be holy. Even as holy. I want to close with the, the last thing of who we are. Uh, we have a mission if you're taking notes. The mission. What's the mission that we see here in what we read in chapter 2 and Parts of 3 and 5. What's the mission here? What's the mission for you and me as Christians? What's the mission of Calvary Chapel of Richmond? Well, it's to be a reflection of Christ and the ministry and be doing, living the ministry of Christ. Pastor Tony gave us that charge back on November 1st. Mary talked about us to reflect Christ to this community, that God put us here on this high-traffic road for a reason. And as the light of Christ shines through us, we reflect God's family. We reflect His peace. We reflect His Word in our life. We reflect the unity that God has with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We reflect that unity with one another. And our growth and our continuous learning and maturing in the holiness of God as we looked at. We choose to live, as Paul said, in Philippians 2.15, Paul wrote, "...as children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. That's what we're called to do, to shine as lights in this world. That's part of the mission. And Jesus said in John eight twelve, I am the light of the world. Now we know He's the light of the world. We all agree with that, right? He is the light of the world. But He also said in Matthew 5, 15, you are the light of the world. Now we're comfortable with Him saying He's the light of the world, but He also said we are the light of the world. Just like the moon is reflecting the sun, we are to reflect His light and he it goes on to say, "A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. He wants us to be set on a hill. Different. This family looks different. This family looks inviting. This family looks at peace. The family of God is different from any other family. It's God's vehicle to bring peace to a world in darkness and in turmoil. His family, think about, it. God's family is in constant. Non-stop growth to add to the family. I'm not talking about growth in our numbers here. I'm talking about the family of God. Romans eight fifteen it says, "But you receive the Spirit of adoption." How does God grow the family? He adopts. He adopts people that were no that at one time were afar off, as we read, and brings them in. He said, "The Spirit of adoption, by whom we cry, Abba, Father." Even again, he uses a family term, not Abba King, not Abba Governor, not Abba Boss, Manager, Father. That's who Jesus said. When he said, when you pray, pray as thus, our Father who art in heaven. This is what Jesus brings us into, is a family relationship. But he also, in that family relationship, he has some work for us to do. In Matthew 28, 19, "...go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit." The kids in God's family are all called to be disciples. The kids in God's family are all called to be disciples. Well, I'm called to be God's son, just not His disciple. I'm called to be His son, but I don't want to bear His name. Right? Now, you take on the whole responsibility, but also the benefits. We're called to be light bearers. You know, I mentioned this a few weeks back, but disciple, it means enthusiastic follower. Enthusiastic followers of Christ desire to grow, and they desire to learn. That's what an enthusiastic follower is. Our focus is to build the family of God here, but the family would be a family people that reflect Christ, but they would all collectively be disciples. Recently New Tribes Missions tweeted out, and they, weren't, they didn't originate this quote, they didn't cite the author, and I, I'd heard it before, but I wanted to say it again. Uh, they said, if you make disciples, you will always get the church, but if you try and build the church, you will rarely get disciples. If you make disciples, you will always get the church. If you try and build the church, you will rarely get disciples. And so much of the machinery it is churchism, is building a church, but not building disciples and not building a family. If we build a family, we build disciples, all the rest that God desires will come. Disciples, they're intent on growing and maturing. They love to be here at the family table as you are this morning, Sundays and Wednesdays, sitting at the family table where we eat together from the Word of God. That's what it is. But also sharing and caring for a lost and dying world uh, outside the house. Disciples have equal focus inward, which is training and, and equipping, but also outwardly, which is light shining out to where people are still in darkness. Disciples are intent on being fruitful and multiplying. We just celebrated uh, the Christmas season, and we remember that the God of peace sent the Prince of Peace to bring his perfect peace to a world that knows no peace. That's what. We were remembering. And I was blessed, as I mentioned last Sunday night, when um, we were in the, uh, in the youth correctional facility. And, um, you know, just, just to be there once a month, I get to go with my wife. And uh, I Patrick, Jenny, you guys were in the, the unit right across from us as husband and wife. It's so cool. I, I love ministering to the saints here this morning, I love ministering to people in the body of Christ and Bible studies but don't ever take away from me the chance to go out and talk to lost people because that's where the life is, taking it to someone else. And, you know, sitting down there on the hard floor with just so much cursing going on in the background and loud and sound bouncing off, and we're talking to this one girl and to watch her accept Christ in front of all that madness. And it was just amazing to see John chapter 4, break her down. In the middle of just that night was chaos. Loud. Just crazy. All locked it, and then she got down and prayed right there in this little slat of a window. Receiving the Lord. Me and my wife were, and we were all tired before we got there. Couldn't hardly get off the couch. We could have like drove to Alaska after that. <laughs> because God is in the business of his family reaching out to other families, especially when they're just broken families and messed up families. Then the following night, it was the uh, following night we were over at Hilliard House. um, I counted, we had seven families there that night, not including two teens that families weren't there. It would have been nine total families. Seeing us do that together, just if you want to see God have a huge smile, that he loves, because he loves us to learn and grow together as we're doing this morning, but he also loves to see us being good Samaritans out there binding up the wounds of those that are broken and don't have a family. This is our mission, Calvary Chapel Richmond. As Christ preached peace to those who are far off, as we have been adopted by his grace and the mercy of God, we're now emissaries of that same grace and mercy. With all of our flaws and imperfections, He's not setting out great, mighty men and women, necessarily. With all of our flaws and imperfections, we're still called to be his ambassadors of peace. We're still called to be reflections of his light. Amen? We're still the ones he sent. Maybe you've forgotten you're in the family of God. Maybe you've taken his grace or the family for granted. Maybe you've been distracted from your role uh, within the family of God. Maybe you're in love with Jesus today more than you ever have before. Praise the Lord for that. Like I said earlier, maybe you need a family. If you want a family, God's offering you one right here. But even if you're visiting, you're passing through Richmond, He's offering you the family of God for all eternity, regardless of Calvary Chapel Richmond. God wants all His children to know His love, but He also wants all of His children to reach out with His love. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that you came not just to mediate our salvation, but Lord, to bring us into a family relationship where we would then be used by your Holy Spirit to grow the family by just simply reaching out with the same love and compassion in which you brought to us. And Lord, we we ask that you would help us this year, Lord, this coming year, to be that reflection of a family that has been radically changed and filled with the love and presence of God the Father. Thank you for being our Father. Thank you for being our Lord and Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for your patience with us when we have been distracted, sidetracked, or, Lord, we fall in love with things that are not eternal, temporal. Lord, turn us back to being your hands and feet in this world. Lord, the same darkness we can't, we go back And we shine as lights for you in this world, that this family would be unified in love and in harmony, appreciating the gifts and talents, but Lord, also being filled with your spirit to use those gifts and talents. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.